City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, acres and acres of Tarrant's Bend, and we're actually here this morning. It's the first three weeks we've been, well, the first in three weeks, because uh, the week before last they played a filler because we down with a cold. And last week, of course, they replayed our transport one from the first week of the month, so people who th- they thought there's drug of deja vu here, well, well, it was because it was a replay. <laughs> um, um, that was that little giggle was from... Um, from Karina Aquilera and I'm Kevin Healy and we are back. Uh, we both had a cold. You had a cold last week too because I rang Karina to say... It was a two-week long cold for both of us. Yeah, right? that's right. And Because uh, I rang Karina out. last week to say, can you do the trans- do the housing day tomorrow? And she, once I heard her voice, I thought, no, she can't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was in the same boat. But anyway, we've. Uh, I, I'm talking, calling it a cold, listener, because I did have a flu injection again this year. Since COVID, I've had flu injections the last couple of years and I never used to get them, mm. and um, so I'm saying if it if it was the flu, then the flu injection worked to treat. So I'm calling it a cold for that reason, but it was pretty nasty for a couple of weeks there. Anyway, that's uh, that, our listeners couldn't give us stuff about that really, so I don't know why I said it. No, but yeah. it is relevant in the sense that we will offer a caveat at the top of today's show <laughs> if Kevin does. You can hear I've lost my coughing, voice. Have a coughing fit. Lost my voice as well. We're both in the wars, but I mean not technically, but. We can get to that in a minute. But I was going to say, if Kevin does need to take a coughing fit and we do cut very quickly to an announcement yes. here or there, um, you'll know why. And, and I'll, I'll pour a, you want a cup of tea? Yeah, I'd love one. All right, beauty. Here we are. Um, you got, you got some honey? <laughs> uh, no, I, oh, not here. Um, we've got plenty at home, but not here. I have a bit cook, of lemon, perhaps. I have, I have eating honey at home and I have cooking honey, chief honey for cooking, so that's what I have at home. Thank you, just like the sherry. All these little secrets coming out this morning. (laughs) Um, And, um, yeah, in today's program, of course, we have, we decided because housing was supposed to be last week, we've twisted back a week, we're just simply, today being a fourth Wednesday, we've gone back a week, so we're going to have our usual housing um, Mm. commentators, we're going to have Shane McGrath from the Housing with the Age Action Group and Jack Burton from um, Public Public Transport Activist, and he's in one of the groups called, I don't know which one he's in. Do you housing, know? housing yeah. activist. Whichever one he's in, <laughs> but he's certainly a public housing activist anyway, uh, and uh, and always talks a lot of sense. So they'll be talking, they'll be on the program a little later, just as another one too, just in in two weeks' time actually, because uh, next week's transport with John McPherson, the following week's our normal energy day, but we have lined up tried to get him with the day originally, but luckily, luckily as it turned out, because we can now do housing, but um, Graham Innes, the former Disability Commissioner of mm. Australia who ran into trouble with a Liberal government at one stage there, um, he's had some things to say about the recent Royal Commission report into disability and he's going to come on in two weeks' time and talk up to us about that. And He, he also, I know, was critical of the, or has some criticism anyway of the structure of the Commission itself and the fact that there weren't enough people with disabilities on the actual Commission. But uh, 
So we've got that's one in two weeks' time we're going to have. I mean, speaking of which, and we're going to spruik it uh, yeah. closer to the date as well, but a nice, a nice person from the Sydney Road Accessible Tram Stop campaign came by the station this morning and asked us to plug the rally on Wednesday, the 15th of November. So just a heads up, that's coming up, and we'll right, talk yeah, about it closer to the date. Um, 12.30, Parliament House. Radio. Radio. Yes. That's news to me, by the way, so that's good to know. Yeah, I've got, got a big old piece of paper over here. It's in right. your format. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, good, good. Okay, well, we'll certainly give that more of a plug when you get closer. Absolutely. What date was that again? The 15th, Wednesday the 15th of November at 12.30pm at Parliament House. Oh, we can sort of pop down from here, really, can't we? So that's going to be the ha- handover of petitions, but presumably we're going to have some kind of... Um, little rally of some sort. Some kind sort, of rally yeah. and get-together yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, just as, a, as an interesting item, I noticed there's an item in the paper the last couple of days, we're sorry to hear this, that Sarah Lee, which makes all those frozen sweet things, cheesecakes and pies and crumbles and ice creams and all sorts of things, frozen things, has gone into liquidation um, administration, anyway, gone to administration and uh, they're hoping, the administrator is hoping to keep the company going and um, it does employ a couple of hundred people so I suppose for their point of view it's, it's, mm. it's hopefully they're okay. But it struck me they're saying, you know, it's, it's amazing how such a great company could hit the brick wall and I thought, well, on one level it's encouraging because it might indicate that people are actually taking care about their health and thinking about their health mm. rather than eating that crap. Well, I don't know if, if if my household is any indication. I think it's more to do with the fact that we can't afford frozen pre-made <laughs> things anymore, and we're right. and we're and we're making the, you know the buttery, sugary things by hand now with with, with flour the old-fashioned way. So there's positives to inflation after all. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I've got a few, number of things here I want to talk about, but I, yeah. I I think because of the events of the past couple of weeks, we should we should comment on them. Definitely. Um, and. I want to point out that 40 years ago, this was before you were even born, Karina. Um, Thanks for the reminder, Kevin. That's all right. 40 40 years ago, uh, I was in Lebanon and I was guest of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and we were um, on a delegation and we visited refugee camps and in the refugee camps, there were children everywhere and someone in our delegation said, you know, living in squalid conditions and all these kids and they said, well, we have to we have to raise the next generation of freedom fighters. Mm. And that was their life. Um, we went down on a Sunday afternoon um, down by the old biblical towns of Tyre and Sidon down to the Israeli border, mm. and there were young blokes there fighting. Um, and one young bloke was um, a final... He was, he was on summer vac. It was their summer. Summer vac... Uh, from uni where he went to Amman University in Jordan and he was going into his final year of medicine. So here he was, a med student going into his final year, spending his summer back fighting for the cause and that was their life. That was absolutely their life. Um, and of course, that at that time, 40 years ago, many of the people in the camps, etc., were were the original people thrown out, the orig- first generation of that general, the original generation. And um, they were still desperate to get back to their homes. That's all they wanted to do. And um, and I raise that because 40 years later, nothing has changed. That's all. Nothing has changed. They're still in that same position. Uh, and after 70 years now, more, 75 years actually, um, it's, um, you know, uh, now while while the attack on the Israeli on the Israeli people was 
pretty dreadful. Um, it, it, it pales against 75 years of people being dispossessed, being overrun, being taken over, having no freedom whatever, uh, no home, and, and a colonial power that says they have no right to that, but which demands its right to defend itself, which mm. I suppose is on one way is fair enough as, in a sense, except, of course, they've taken over someone else's land. They're defending their right to take over that land. And, but secondly, of course, they say that the people whom they oppress, the people whose land they take, the people whom their settlers uh, attack and destroy, have no right to resist. If they resist, then they're terrorists, mm. and etc. And, of course, the word terrorists and, and those militants and things are thrown around when the real terrorism is, of course, the Israeli army and its attack on those people. Um, yeah, 75, 76 years later, it's perhaps not the... The grimmest, but it's the most overt and the most explicit, uh, like stage of genocide. It's it's and it's one and it's one that we can't close our eyes to really yeah, at no, this point. No. Um, I'm pretty sure listeners of Three C are pretty aware of all this, but it's, I think it's worth we need to say it. That you it's, need um, to. It's just um, bloody dreadful, and, and it can't be. Re- and in fact, of course, the, the they keep talking about a two-state solution. Well, the, the more unless you throw all those settlers out of the West Bank, then a two-state solution is totally impossible. Every settlement makes it less likely, and in fact, it is now impossible, in my opinion. So, I think the only solution is a one-state solution, in which that state is not a religious state. It's a it's a multi-religious, multi-racial state in which all those people live together, which they did, of course, before yeah. um, before 1948. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's uh, and it's, so there's no simple solution to it other than the fact that the attacks on the Israel-Palestinian people and the oppression of their lives has to stop, and that can happen overnight. But it ain't going to happen. It's going to get worse and worse, which is bloody frightening. But, you know, and I was thinking about this, you know, in the two weeks that both of us were sick as well as all of this was kind of unfolding. Um, We are able to stay home. You know, I didn't I didn't attend the first Mm. Sunday rally and and I and I felt bad about it. But I was like, no, but I'm sick. But actually, people, they don't have a choice. No. And, and and resistance is the only way, and that's and that's just what it is. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, so their life is is fighting. I mean, and, and it, that brings up that old adage, of course, that yeah. you know one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist, and another person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, and uh, it all depends where you come from as to how you how you view that. Uh, the other other item, of course, in the past couple of weeks was the um, the referendum. Mm. And another story I want to tell from way back then, and going back even further now, I'm getting really into history here. Um, back when I was living at a place called DMZ, Demilitarised Zone, in the, anti- in the Vietnam War period, which was a shop front in Paran near the corner of Turak Road and Chapel Street, and there was a pub on that corner at that time, and uh, there were, and it was a front for the draft resistance movement in many ways, and shop, and the shop that was. You know, rats hold the paraphernalia of flower power and all flowers in your hair and all that stuff at the time. Um, but late in its life, toward the end of DMZ, when the war was coming to an end and we were all going our own separate ways, but in the last last part of DMZ, a bloke called Rod Marks moved in and lived with us, and he was a Rod was a full-blooded Aboriginal, um, and 
one Saturday night. It was a Saturday night between Christmas and New Year. And he went across to the pub to have a few drinks. I don't know how many he had, but it didn't matter. Um, and uh, at 10 o'clock closing in those days, and when he came out of the pub, as, as everyone came out of the pub at the same time, poured out, the coppers were waiting, and they arrested exactly one bloke um, of those who came to the pub. And, and I'll see if you can take a stab as to who got arrested, uh, Karina. Go on, it was Rod Marks, the uh, full-blooded Aboriginal, yeah, uh, who rang us next morning to say that he'd been charged with assaulting coppers uh, who'd bashed him in the cells and then charged him the usual thing at Paran Police Station in those days. Mm-hmm. But he, he said, could we come and get a doctor to come and, and show that he had been bashed? And mm-hmm. so we, and we couldn't find a friendly doctor. They all seemed to be away at that time of year. And one of the blokes uh, who hung around DMZ said, look, I've got, I know what doctor, I know what he's like politically, but I'll ring him. And so the doctor said, yeah, I'll go down and do it. So we all trotted down to Paran Police Station to bail Rod out and um, we're sitting out the front waiting. And waited ages and nothing happened. So this bloke rang the doctor again and said, what happened? And the doctor, showing his political prowess, said, oh, he said, it's OK. He said, I rang Paran Police Station and said, have you got a bloke there who's been bashed by the police? And they said, no. So he said, there's no problem. I thought, this bloke's got to be a, an idiot, a total bloody idiot. Anyway, we bailed him out and we took photos. <laughs> Bit hard to see bruises on Rod, but we took photos. And um, and we beat the rap because um, we had the photos and we went to court and he beat the rap, which was great. But I raised that again because that was, well, it's 50 or something years ago now, so whatever it is. And... <coughs> And again, nothing's changed. I mean, today, people like Rod are being arrested all the time in similar situations. So in both those cases, and they're both to do with people dispossessed by colonial, colonialists, uh, 50, 40 years later, it all goes on. It's just the same. And the referendum, I think, was further proof of that. And uh, the, 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 the progressive no vote, and I can understand their position, uh, was a very small percent of the, the no vote. So, mm. we, so really, the majority of no vote was, in my opinion, a racist vote based on the crap that, that, that Dutton and company and all those people spread and the lies and misinformation. But, uh, but, and, and the slogan, if you don't know, vote no, was, as the statement came out this week, made appear, said it appealed to total ignorance in the community. Mm. I think uh, I mean we are we are a bit late to this discussion, of course, but but I think yeah. it was I, I think it would be worth noting um, how much you know mental mental anguish this whole process has put on First Nations communities um, and has caused division within and between communities, and some argue on purpose, um, as my Murray mate quite eloquently put it. Um, she's she was always an advocate for that progressive no that you t- you speak about, but she said no matter what the outcome of this referendum, um, she said I I, I do believe it's going to be the same, um, and yet mob will continue practicing culture and resistance, um, as we have been anyway yeah, yeah, this yeah. entire time, and that to me I think kind of says it perfectly, um, but. Also, you know, just another just another reminder for for those with the, 
you know, who feel disheartened or, you know, had the big placards in their windows mm. to, to get involved in, in mm. grassroots campaigns and other acts of um, other acts of solidarity and other actions and resistances um, in, in the community. Oh, the struggle must go on, of course. And, of and, course. I, and I was under no illusion that the, the voice could would be any i mean it was it was no no guarantee the voice would do much anyway i don't think in in reality but i think it was still important that we voted yes mm. on principle in the situation but uh, anyway we've done it and uh, that's it uh, but to to all those diehards out there who really are crestfallen um keep 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 it going keep it going that's right that's right and and keep struggling against uh, against the the colonial the colonial powers that be like Mm, in Queensland they've now said well this means we can't go on with treaty anymore and I noticed the opposition here in Victoria was saying the same thing that this treaty thing in Victoria that's been going on um, Pseudo is saying he he should you know, he, he he needs more time to think about whether he should support it or not now because yeah. uh, because of this vote uh, that people don't want these things. He's using it to shut the argument down. Of yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? Um, yeah, so, so just a couple of other things. We'll go to our first guest very shortly, but uh, you, you want to play a song too, don't you? Yeah, I do. My word, you do. Um, be pleased to know that. Um, Every time you say that, I know I won't be. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Look, you're going to be un- very unpleased to know that that uh, a bloke of right-wing ALP um, senator called Don Farrell, um, who is the trade minister, uh, has appointed... There was a woman public servant who was um, selected from a selection process to become the Australian um, ambassador in Sanville, the, the investment training commissioner and commissioner in San Francisco. Um, but then that having happened, that process having been gone through, uh, he then appointed a an ex-union bloke who'd been a, been a senator in his time as well uh, to the position and... Um, and overruled the the process, uh, but now says uh, he came out of the shoppers union, of course, which is the the right wing union we talk about quite often. The SDA. The SDA. Um, so these two, um, he's now appointed this bloke to this highly paid position, and overruled the the public servant, which is uh, which is interesting, um, and it, it goes against another thing that's happened, which is a positive note, that the government has in fact. Um, Mail made a, a direct ruling that federal agencies uh, must set targets to reduce reliance on contractors and consultants under changes that formally ban the use of external hires for core work and leadership. Now, that, this is a positive, um, and they say targets must be in place by June 2024 and should outline which parts of the agency's operation will be brought back to in-house, how many roles will be affected, and the anticipated reduction in expenditure and they claim what they've already done about getting rid of contracts and, and getting rid of these terrible people, have already saved nearly $3 billion, and um, the whole thing is toward now the public service running all these things rather than them. So that that is a positive, mm. but of course it doesn't look so positive when you see uh, a public servant chosen to an important position, which is a position public servant should be in, and then a, a former shoppies union uh, bloke, mate of the minister, who also comes from the same union, um, Mm. happens to get the job. How about that? 
Another day in the colony. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so there you are. Um, and um, our old mate Anthony Pratt um, from Visi, he's got he's been running all these ads. He's been running ads about uh, with photograph with Keating and company and uh, how he helps with super. Now he's running ads this week uh, in yellow vests and green jobs. Queensland Treasurer Cameron Dick. And Federal Industry Minister Ed Usick joined Visi Chairman Anthony Pratt at the opening of our new recycled box factory in Brisbane recently. Visi for a better world, green jobs. And a big photo of Anthony, good old happy Anthony. And now, we, had a, we mentioned some time ago on this program, there was a community, I can't think, I think it's in around eastern Melbourne somewhere, where he has a, a plant which the, where the chimney stack is causing massive pollution problems for its neighbours. Um, and he was even ordered by a court, I think, to fix it up. But he pointed out that he would fix it up, but it would take time. He had to spend a few months because, you know, the expense, etc. So the man who really cares about green uh, had a, couldn't immediately fix up a problem of pollution for neighbours to one of his plants. But anyway, that's uh, beside the point. Now, just... On that same point, though, um, a bloke called, he's pretty well known, Geoffrey Watson, he's a, he's a silk who's um, a director of the Centre for Public Integrity, he often talks about these sort of issues, yeah. and he's pointed out that uh, former Prime Ministers Paul Keating and Tony Abbott are both on Pratt's payroll, yeah. and he's saying... Um, Society should consider, reconsider whether politicians should continue to receive retirement benefits given some take up lucrative lobbying jobs. And he points out that uh, documents showed Pratt, whose fortune from paper recycling is estimated at $23 billion, paid Keating 25000 a month and Abbott 8000 a month for consultancy services. The precise nature of the services performed by the former Prime Minister is unclear, as is the duration of the payments, although Keating is a supporter of Pratt's long-standing desire to convince superannuation funds to loan to businesses like his. If Keating's getting 25 grand, how much is John Howard worth, Watson said? If mm. Abbott and Keating are getting money, who else? There seem to be weakness in our system insofar we have historically set aside substantial sums to pay pensions to our politicians. We don't know what services Pratt is getting, seeking or receiving from these powerful politicians who are receiving the money, but he wouldn't be doing it out of altruism. It is presumably to obtain some kind of advantage in either his commercial or private life, or mm. probably both, etc., etc., etc. So, um, yeah... And the longer we take to cut that off, the deeper in we become because the more sums get exchanged and the more secretive it is, right? That's right, yes, it all goes on. Um, so let's cut it off So now. We're, we're cheering people up no end here this morning. We'll cheer them up more. We're going to talk after this break to Shane McGrath from the Housing with the Aged Action Group. Yeah, I'm going to play a Chilean song by Inti Imani. Um, and, yeah, I won't, I won't go too much into lyrics, but, uh, you know, despite the, the daily horrors, basically... Um, Hope it encourages people to keep on singing regardless. Tener buena voz. Canto porque el sentimiento, canto porque la amistad, canto por la realidad, canto por el sufrimiento. Canto porque su talento, el amor. 
porque las amarras se soltaran de la gente se le oyó decir ausente canto porque la guitarra tu vida encaminada por un ideal diferente por estar entre la gente a la muerte fue llevada ser librada de la fuerza y la opresión que ha apretado al corazón tu canto y día se aferra porque cantarle a la tierra tiene sentido y razón giving the voice to community since 1976. Okay, on the line we have Shane McGrath from the Housing Aid Jackson Group. And Shane, there's an item on the news this morning, I don't know if you heard it or not, uh, that they, uh, a, a landlord's been taken to court uh, over an accident, or not, I wouldn't call it an accident, uh, a woman who'd reported a number of times a problem with a floor, with literally a hole in the floor, and um, she eventually fell through it, and she was pregnant, and in fact lost the baby. Um, and and the story this morning on the ABC made the point that this is you know there's several cases like this where landlords repeatedly um, or are repeatedly asked and repeatedly don't carry out what should be normal um, normal maintenance. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it, it points to so many problems with the systems that we have, including the difficulties that renters have enforcing their rights. Because, you know, she was entitled to get those repairs done 
uh, before any of this happened. And obviously it's a, a failure of the system that she, for whatever reason, wasn't able to get that to happen. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, you make the, I mean, they're taking it up, which is interesting because a lot of people don't, because we've mentioned it before, because they're afraid of, uh, of being thrown out if they complain. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, you suspect that that's what's happened to her as well, that she, you know, knew she had these problems, that she was too scared of what would happen if she reported them, and the outcome's been really tragic. Mm. Yeah, no, we'll see what happens to that. But uh, anything else? What's happening in your part of the world anyway? How's with H Action Group? But uh, Well, can, can we just mention, I think the last time I was on the show was just before the housing statement came out, and we were talking a bit about what we expected to be in it. Yep. Um, we expected it to be bad for public housing, but I don't think any of us anticipated uh, how bad, or that, you know, mm. Daniel Andrews would basically say, oh, as my final act as Premier, I'll be destroying public housing in the state. I'll be tearing down every public housing yeah. high-rise in the inner city for 30 years. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm done. Uh, what a shameful uh, <laughs> note to end a, a premiership on. Yeah, and, and I notice every single tower, like I've, I've argued for, I've mentioned for years, I can imagine because of the real estate value, that uh, the high-rise on the Strand at Williamstown, you can see developers out the front drooling looking at it. I notice, I notice it's included. Um, yeah. But... Um, yeah, it, and it, they talk, and in fact, Andrews used the term public-private partnerships. That's a pretty dangerous phrase in this situation, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, it's just clear, when, when you say every public housing tower, like, that's clearly not uh, something that's based on a, a, a sober analysis of the, the benefits and costs of, of mm. doing it. It's an ideological decision to destroy public infrastructure, destroy public housing, and yeah, as you say, public-private partnerships, uh, turning it out, turning it into social housing, all of those things. Uh, I mean, it's not even privatisation by stealth anymore. It's a, a naked, ideologically driven announcement to destroy public housing that exists, uh, some of which you know, could be renovated, could be you know, kept in, in good condition. Uh, and instead, they're going to tear it down because they hate public housing. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they say they're going to do that, but there has also been, an, of course, a very strong resistance already from the community and from public housing tenants. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to force them to, to back down. And, well, let's hope so. But there was, there was an article in The Age shortly after the, um, the announcement and said, according to the government's plan, the 10,000 public housing tenants would be... Um, have moved elsewhere while their buildings are raised and rebuilt. The new buildings would hold three times as many people as the current towers, but only 10% of that housing stock is set aside for, in brackets, social housing. It is unclear if that means 11,000 public housing tenants will return or whether they will be community housing tenants with non-government agencies. So um, there's still a lot of things unclear, although we might suggest it will be private rather than public. Yeah, I mean, and the uncertainty has been obviously extremely stressful for the, the people living in those towers. We're seeing, you know, already people turning up at the office worried that their homes are about to get knocked down. And there's, there's no clarity that anyone can give them about what the, the time frames or, or what that's likely to look like. Yeah, and so what, you've actually got, so you've been in your house with the age, so you've got older people, but these, I imagine also older people who come to you would, would have been in these places for a fair while. Yeah, I mean, I think public tenancies tend to be longer than other tenancies by their nature. So, yeah, a lot of older people do live in uh, in the high-rises and, and other kinds of public housing.
Absolutely. Yeah, at the same time, I mean, don't know what's going to replace them. At the same time, there was a recent um, report by Infrastructure Victoria that says, in fact, we should be going into much denser living rather than spreading the spreading suburbia out. Uh, and this would seem in some ways to be even contrary to that, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, I haven't seen that report. I, I couldn't really comment. Yeah, but well, that, well, did they they say? Well, they say it's um, it's better for the economy, which is the like, well, they think about, it, I suppose. But also, I think it's better because you're not going to the more you spread, the more you destroy the ecology and environment of the land you're you're spreading on. Of course, that's another factor. Uh, but uh, but tearing down high rise when they they call out for for higher density would seem to uh, defeat the purpose to me. But the, I mean, the intention, I think, is to make those sites denser. So they're, they're filling up the what's now green space with more units that, that they can flog off to private developers. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's all that matters then, really, isn't it? But um, there's, there's also been reports, of course, and there was one done um, for Port Melbourne um, last year, but also for all these estates, that show that uh, it would be much cheaper just to fix them up. And leave them there. Make them make them work better. If there's any problems with maintenance, then fix it up. Yeah, well, it doesn't seem like that's something the government has, you know, even considered in its, like I say, ideologically driven decision just to rip them down. But yeah, there's a, a not-for-profit uh, consulting architecture firm that's done some research to show that some of the uh, demolitions uh, that the sites could have been redeveloped more, more, you know, more cheaply, efficiently, effectively if people were allowed to stay and the properties renovated rather than uh, demolished. Yeah, and the fact that the government's argument is, oh, but they're too run down to fix up, um, doesn't that reflect on the government in the first place? Well, I mean, people have been saying this for, literally for decades that it was the bipartisan policy of the both sides of Victorian politics to deliberately run down these towers so they would eventually be able to get rid of them. So it's a conscious strategy. Everyone's known that for years. Hmm. It's a question you really can't answer. I don't know why I'm going to ask it to you, Jade, but but why has the government turned its back on public housing in the last 10 or 15 years so so strongly? Uh, because, I mean, because the government hates poor people and they love private investment. They, they believe in profit. The, the, the government is fundamentally committed to private property, profit, housing profit, all of those things. Uh, and public housing... Is is just not consistent with those those values. Uh, I use value in the I don't know, value in an unusual sense, I guess. Yeah, and in fact, that's the case because in this again, in that article in the Age I was referring to, uh, it said a government spokesman said that each tower redevelopment project would be subject to a business case and tender process that would be commercial in confidence, as is standard practice. So. They're actually seeing it as a pure business rather than uh, providing housing for people, I would have thought. Uh, we should talk more about business cases another time. We're going to run out of time here, but I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts on business cases uh, another week. <laughs> right. Well, can you give us a quick thought on it? <laughs> oh, well, what a joke. Yeah. I mean, when, when you say business case, you mean like you, you're trying to put, uh, you're trying to frame what you say as a socially desirable policy in terms of profit. Uh, and it's just a, a kind of you know, almost like a magic trick of juggling those things around to make one look like the other. 
Yeah, and at the same time, uh, our old mate, the Herald Sun, I presume it's true, we're going to rely on them for telling the truth for once, um, they had an article in, um, in yes, just yesterday, in fact, um, saying that up to 117 people at a time are inquiring about each rental property listed in the city's most indwind suburbs. New data reveals, this was data by, um, by well, someone or other, um, prop track figures, prop track. Um, uh, so if that's the case, that you know, the answer is there's far more need for, for rental housing and we would argue for public housing than, uh, than the government's coming up with. I mean, plainly, there's a need for more housing, but I, I mean, I think part of that's got to be a function of the online application platforms that real estate agents are using now, right? Like, it used to be that applying for a rental property, you know, took a significant amount of time getting papers together for that particular agent, you know, all of those things. Now I have a profile uploaded to a real estate application portal, and I can just click the properties that I want to apply for. So, of, of course, you're getting, you know, a, an unmanageable volume of applications. Um, yeah. as well as the, the various problems of privacy and data security and all of those things that go with these sort of unregulated uh, algorithmic platforms. Yeah, so, uh, well, it's uh, it remains to be a problem. But you were pleased to know that the Financial Review had a... Um, ad for itself saying deconstruct the housing market, lift the roof on the real estate market with expert insights and analysis from the financial review. So make it your business, it says. So that should solve the problem, shouldn't it? Yeah, well, the, the private sector's been doing a great job so far, so we'll, we'll just keep, up, keep at it. <laughs> That's right. And on the matter of urban sprawl, of course, the um, our old mate Tim Gurner, who uh, made that wonderful comment about it the other week about how workers have to know who the boss is, then we should have lots more of them unemployed and they should earn a lot less. Mm-hmm. Um, a big developer. Um, he recently took over another developer in St Kilda Road, but he, he said he's got 14 of his 30 national developments uh, on hold until they're ready to make a killing. And he says, he'll hang on to this one in St Kilda Road again until the time is right to develop it. He's going to make this massive, wonderful development. Um, but um, these are the I same... Mean, least, you've got to at least admire that he's, he's you know, following what he believes in. He thinks <laughs> that more people should be unemployed and he's making himself unemployed. He's refusing to do any work. Well, that's right. No, he's got a few others going, 14 out of 30. But, um, these, so there's a few more. There's, there's, what's that mean? There's 16 or something and it's still you know, going. But the fact is these are the same people who say the real problem with housing is the government isn't making enough land available, and yet when it is available, they sit on it. So is there a contradiction here somewhere? Surely not. Well, no, I can't imagine it. Not with, not with, not with the capitalist system, uh, Shane. Yeah. Not with everything working so well at the moment. Um, look, I'm going to have to go in a minute. Can I plug something before I jump off the phone? I was about to ask you, what, what else is happening? Go on, yep. Yeah, so tomorrow, Thursday, from 11 till 2 at the Hag offices, we're having a quilting bee. Uh, we'd love for people to come along. You can uh, call us at the office to register or just turn up. It's probably okay as well. Um, so Hag is assembling a new banner, uh, a new protest banner celebrating 40 years that Hag's been in existence. Uh, we've asked our members over the last month or so to uh, create, you know, squares with, with particular letters on them and we're going to assemble them into a new banner demanding housing justice for older people and we'd love to see uh, some listeners coming down if they, if they feel like it. Okay, and what time is that tomorrow? 
11 till 2. 11 till 2. So there'll be one of those wonderful lunches in the middle somewhere, will there? Will there? There'll be a lunch, whether it'll be one of the wonderful lunches, <laughs> I couldn't say. Um, and just before you leave, Shane, could you also please give out the HAG number again in case yeah, people yeah. do want to register or just get in touch even? Absolutely. Uh, the best, If you want to register, the best number is going to be 9654 7389. That's 9654 7389. All right, Shane, look, thanks for your time again, and we'll talk again next month. All right, no worries. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks a lot. Shane McGrath there from the Housing with Action Group, and uh, we're going to take another break, and we'll write back, and we're going to have Jack Burton on the line to talk more about public housing. Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, non fiction, and cutting edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on from November the 3rd. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between November the 3rd to the 10th will go on the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland, and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter. public space undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. And you're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. On the line we have Jack Verdon's public housing advocate, activist. Um, Jack was just telling me as I was calling him on the phone, he's been to a few of the actions coming uh, that have been around um, lately, a, a few of the various actions. Good morning, Jack. Um, did you want to give us a little rundown on what you've been up to? Hey, g'day, yeah. So um, uh, I went along to a uh, meeting at the Afton Gardens estate mm. uh, in Fitzroy. That's the one that's just uh, going north of Gertrude Street there uh, in, in the Brunswick Street, Gertrude Street sort of precinct. And uh, it was run by the Greens, of that's the local member, of course, and um, uh, the place was packed. It was packed, and it was, it was packed with, well, I would say, a lot of people that were actually quite uh, demonstrably afraid. 
afraid of their future and what was going on. So this this was all to do with the pulling down of the public housing towers, of course. Um, and there there was a bit you know a bit of a presentation, but then there were a number of people asked questions. I think the the thing that really stood out for me firstly was just the background on the people there. So and, and I admire the Greens are actually pre-organised um, translators. So we had Vietnamese. Somali and Arabic translators there sitting at tables and then groups of people you know, who needed translation were, were sitting around and and it was sort of a lengthy meeting because every every sort of statement had to be then translated and it was, it was but it was run really well and you know some of these people had received letters saying that their their, their house their, their community was just going to be wrecked I mean there's no consultation or nothing done. It was just an announcement by, by Dan Andrews on his way out the door saying, I'm going to destroy public housing in Victoria. And and these people are actually quite astute because there was a lot of talk about the bad experience other people have had with these sort of projects. And, you know, things like uh, being told that, you know, when place was rebuilt, everyone would have the right of return. Yet there are just sites all over Melbourne where the rebuild hasn't happened. They've mm. done the pull-down of the public housing, and I think uh, some in North Melbourne is like that, and they've just left it vacant now for years. So, you know, what's this right of return anyway when they're not even starting the builds? And this this stuff's all just commercial it's all to do with pre-selling, pre-selling the new build because most of the stuff they're rebuilding is private, and so we're talking about just massive years of delay before we see anything that appears anyway. And um, so any sort of promises made to the existing tenants is just a joke, and I think people realise that. And so I think there's the other thing that you know I went along to a. The, the meeting had been um, in Collingwood, just off off Wellington Street. The high rises there on um, on Saturday, and you know, I was really encouraged because I think we're going we're going to take the government on on this, and it's going to be defeated. So there's there's definitely talk of direct action going on, uh, and that will mean blockades and all that stuff. So you know, you don't negotiate with these these jokers, um, you, you need to stop what they're doing. Um, Jack, we've currently got a massive public housing waiting list, as you know. Um, yeah. I think the last figure I saw was 58,131 households are waiting. Yeah. And um, that's that's households, so that's, you know, there's more people involved than that. Yeah, double um, And um, I mentioned to Shane the story in yesterday's Herald Sun, up to 117 people at a time are inquiring about each rental property. So yeah. where do these people go, even if they, when they, you know, are waiting to go back? I mean, we'll, we'll assume they're not going to get back anyway. But yeah. where are they going to put these people while this happens after that? Yeah. Time? So th- and and yeah, and it's, it's talking about a hundred. I think it's ten thousand people uh, live in these towers. So all, all together, it's about uh, six thousand units. I think when I, mean, I did some work on this years ago. There are about actually 6,000 dwellings in these towers, so that sort of makes sense, 10,000 people. So um, 
So right now they're they're actually using they're using this they've come up with this real fancy new word the government they're calling about decanting people so when they move you they they they, they decant you sounds like you know, they're just pouring you out of a, so to the pull, tower pull the cork yeah. out of your head and pour you out yeah yeah and and they're not, they're not uh, they're not demolishing the towers they're retiring them. That's the other, the other bit of word used. But, yeah, so where do these people go? Well, we, we, had, we had the experience with the, um, the Flemington Towers during lockdown mm. where, where it was discovered, that, you know, there was massive overcrowding with large families squeezing into small apartments. And so that was an example. Of where, where do they actually place people? They went and went around and, and spot-rented places on the open market, which I guess was a bit easier then than now when there's so many people waiting for a rental. But when they did it on the open market, the deal was for two years, and and so okay, so the people there got got uh, comparable rentals for their private housing, but after two years, the deals expired, and no one's helping them. They just left. They actually they've, they've lost their their uh, housing, and now they're just on the open market and probably having a reapply on the list. So there's some shocking stories coming off out of that, and, and I actually. I've been looking at Homes Victoria website. And there's, some, there's some amazing sort of uh, fairy tale documents there. Uh, one's called the, the, um, the Government Housing Statement. Now it's a real official thing. Forty-four pages of fairy tales, <clears throat> and so there, there's stuff on the website there where they're, they're saying, "Oh, when we um, when we build one new um, set of new towers, we will decant." Uh, the residents of the uh, the next tower to go down into the new towers, so it will bubble people across. It's just junk like that going on. Well, you know, the, the new towers don't have public housing for a starter, and they're going to have reduced number of bedrooms because there's just a minimal number if they meet their promise of extra, and I'll use the word social housing. And there won't be enough room to decant people into the new 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 places anyway. And then you've got these massive uncertainties with you know, development times and people sitting on empty blocks. Because the developers are pretty keen. They will, they will not develop until they've pre-sold a whole lot of private stuff to help fund their project. So, yeah. And as we were discussing last time on the show um, that you're on, I think, Jack... Um, the the farce around the affordable housing business where, you know, for a single person, the ones, the, the, the few yeah. houses, the few units that are available uh, leave people after, if, if they're on JobSeeker, for example, with about yeah. $100 at the end of each week for bills, groceries and other and other things like fuel bedding yeah. and stuff. Affordable housing is a non-entity. It's a farce. Yeah, so... Um and yeah, and the other thing you know, was that when Andrews did these announcement of pulling down the public housing towers, he did it with the, the, the property council next to him, the Master Builders Association. So it's literally saying, these are my friends. These are the people I deal with. And, and of course, we know that these people give massive amount of funding to the two major political parties. So, you know, they're all tied together. But anyway, look, I was encouraged by the meeting in Collingwood. Um, uh, Stephen Jolly, uh, MC, a well-known socialist councillor in, mm. in the city of Yarra, and he he was you know he called out the direct action and he gave examples where you know where we've won. Um, East West Link, apparently Atherton Gardens, um, 
about 10 years ago, they tried to sell them off to developers. So that was another one that they backtrack on. So we do know that the government will backtrack on um, on pressure. Yeah. And now we've got Dan Andrews gone, megalomaniac. We will, we will maybe have better of a chance of actually pressuring the government even more successfully. Uh, one of the key things that was missing at the moment uh, that Stephen Jolly noted that we don't have the CFMEU on board yet. Mm. So there's got to be pressure that's got to be put onto the CFMEU. Um, uh, the people like the Maritime Workers Union and you know, those sort of people, they're, they're, they're absolutely on board. But uh, the CFMEU is, is a bit of a worry. Actually, um, there was an online seminar run by some people in New South Wales where the, uh, on, about public housing, and this actually might actually spread into an Australia-wide movement, by the way, is what, what they're talking about. Uh, but the, uh, one of the speakers they invited on, quite bizarrely, was the uh, National Secretary of the CFMEU, who uh, quite tellingly used the words public and community housing constantly and bizarrely thanked thank the, the Green speaker, Max Chandler-Maver, uh, for his activism in support of public and community housing, which, like, hang on, well, firstly, you know, the Greens don't support community housing, yet, you know, we have the CFMEU speaker, you know, talking about community housing, and in, in Q&A on this particular session, he was actually pulled up on, on his use of the word social housing too much during his speech. So it's just telling, I think, just from, from that speech that there are, there are issues around getting the CFMEU on board and I guess it gets down to something I mentioned last time, where a lot of these union people also see a future in politics as a career path. So they don't like to rock the boat. Yes, and of course the point is, you know, you mentioned about the, the usual housing, private housing suspects being next to the Premier when he made the statement. Um, is, is, it, is it assumed, therefore, that that there's going to be a lot of private money in this, which means, means immediately that... Uh, that it's going to be a lot, lot more expensive anyway in the first place. Well, the private money means means investors, and investors are looking for returns. Yeah. yeah. And so you get the joke like, well, I think it was Mervac, wasn't it, who do do their affordable housing, and it's it's more expensive than the the, the mean rental in the area because they got to they got to get a return on their investment. But they use some <clears> sort of formula that allows them to call it affordable housing. It's, it's similar with with Albanese's um, housing program, you know, the one he's put up with all the millions they're going to spend over so many years. Yeah. But again, uh, we're seeing superannuation funds and the big investors coming out and saying, look, we can only help the government out if we get better deals. So what they're really saying is we want the government to give us our profits. Uh, <laughs> but again... I thought the government was putting money up, so again, it seems like some of the private sector is going to get involved in that as well. Yeah, well, they're, they're going for a double whammy. <laughs> so, I actually came across yeah. this, this document, the um, housing statement. Um, I can't remember, just, you know, just flitting through it, a little, little, little incredible little statement here about you know, how the investors are thinking. It's called Unlock Surplus Government Land. Now, this is the sort of land we want to have more public housing built on, of course. And it, it says, we've heard from inst- institutional investors in the private property sector, sector that they need more clarity and certainty when it comes to underused and surplus government land. 
in order to guide their investments. Oh, my goodness. So, oh, that's a big problem we need to help solve, you know. And it says, we'll unlock and rezone surplus government land to deliver around 9,000 homes across 45 sites in metro and regional Victoria. And as part of this work, and I, me saying generously, we'll set a target of at least 10% of affordable homes to be built across these sites. So that's their, that's their statement in the housing statement on what they're going to do with surplus government land. They're, they're, going, to, they're going to clarify to these investors and make it, make it more certain for them, you know. Well, there was some time ago the government announced a number of, of properties it owns where they said they would do to, they would develop, and yet the age at about two months ago now or so they had an article saying, well, every one of these sites is still sitting there and nothing has happened long time after the government made the announcement. So even when yeah. they make the announcement, nothing happens. Yeah. So we're, we're, that's why I sort of call this, this stuff sort of like you know, fairy tales. Um, uh, the so we ha- seem to have a very active PR department and I seem to have a target of making announcements and producing documents. Mm-hmm. So all this stuff that I found, I just went to the Homes Victoria website, by the way, all this stuff I found there has all been renewed since September. So, you know, they must have been working on this pull-down-the-towers announcement and just put a whole lot of spin around it. Whether anything happens or not is um, up to the gods, I guess. Um, but... We're not going to let them pull down these towers. You know, I, I, you know the, the anger is palpable, and you could feel it there. And by the way, anyone who wants to have a look at how good public housing is, walking off Wellington Street past the first two towers, and you will see in there a vibrant community, kids playing basketball courts, nice green land between the towers, you know, with a bit of landscaping and all that, so it's not just flat, flat ugly dirt. Uh, it's a lovely community in there, and that's what a lot of the speakers at the at the uh, event said. You know, if, you know, we talk about Aboriginal um, you know, ties to land and community, and all that, and you can feel that with just human beings everywhere. So there's people that have lived in public housing for a long time. There are people from all sorts of nations there. They're all friends. They're living in harmony, which is what we need. And instead, someone else, for the sake of profit, wants to go and destroy it all. Indeed, when you say destroyed, all that community gets broken up completely. When the towers, yeah. if they're going to you know, move people yeah. out, then yeah. they get dispersed all over the place and, yeah. uh, and, and lose the community sense, of course. Yeah, and with a lot of trauma. And a lot of these people have come from overseas, from you know, states of war, they've committed a lot of horror, and now they're getting kicked around again. So we can't mm-hmm. let this happen. Good. Well, more next month on that one, Jack. We're out of time, but uh, we'll keep it up because it's going to. This is going to be a long, long-running campaign. But uh, all power to uh, all power to the people in this one. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And we're going to do it. Radio. Thanks, Jack, and thanks for your time. We'll talk again next month. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Jack Burton. There is obviously a massive campaigner for public housing issues. And Karina, that's it for the week. Next week, transport. That's it for the week. Next week, transport. We staggered through without coughing. <laughs> now, both of us <laughs> stay tuned for Annika's World uh, right after this short break.
The state government has sold 578 hectares of public land to private developers. They're building private public partnership model housing over public housing land and it's just not on. Housing is just massively expensive. It's never been effective in this country to rely on the market to provide decent housing for people. Rent has risen by 21%. That's median rent across the country as of January this year. As the rents keep rising, so must we. And we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few. It will only be victorious by the many. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.